Welcome to Legalese, a broadcast about law cast broadly. Bienvenue à Legalese, une émission consacrée aux droits qui vise à en rendre le jargon plus accessible tout en évaluant de manière critique ces institutions. I'm Christophe, your host for this month's edition of Legalese. Today on the show, we'll be talking about proof of vaccination policies in Canadian universities and explore why Quebec universities stand out. Unlike many of their counterparts across the country, universities in Quebec have so far opted not to adopt proof of vaccination requirements on their campuses. Before the start of the fall semester, a group of McGill profs banded together with one major demand of the administration, that it impose a vaccine mandate. The administration was quick to shut down the idea. It insists that such a mandate violates the law in Quebec. Richard Gold is a professor at McGill's faculties of law and medicine, He's been advocating for a stricter health policy at the university. He spoke to Legalese's co-producer, Michelle Pucci. Here's their conversation. Before we get started, could you just introduce yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Richard Gold. I'm a professor at the Faculty of Law and also in the Faculty of Medicine. So back in August, you signed not one, but two letters proposing new COVID-19 protocol at McGill. Can you explain just briefly what the demands are? So the letter was really addressed to the legal issues that the university put forward. The university claimed at various dates that it could not impose any type of requirement in respect of vaccines, coming up with different reasons that changed and never really explained itself. What we addressed was a proposal that had been addressed, sorry, what we proposed was a a uh, series of steps adopted by other universities, both in the United States, over 700 and across Canada. And it involved a proof of vaccination requirement to attend classes. Could be implemented in a variety of ways. Uh, so the first obligation was that students, staff and faculty would have to show some documentation. So in Quebec, that's relatively easy for people vaccinated elsewhere, there are other documents that could be used, unless they sought an exemption. And there are human rights, regular human rights exemptions that are recognized. For example, if they had a medical condition that prevented them from getting a vaccine. Those are quite narrow, because even most people with allergies, it can they can still get the vaccine, and they benefit a lot more from the vaccine than not but there was that exemption. The other was for religious uh, reasons. There are only a few religions that actually prohibit vaccines, but we needed to recognize that. For those individuals, the proposal was, just as uh, it is across Canada and the United States, that those individuals go under, uh, take twice weekly or three times a week testing. It could be PCR testing, it could be rapid testing, but some type of testing procedure. There would also need to be a transition period because you're announcing the requirement now in the middle of classes, but even then it takes at least four weeks between the doses and then getting a time for it to become fully effective. So during that transition period, students would, or staff or faculty would undergo testing. So they would have to, with it by a certain date, get get their first vaccine continue testing and have their second vaccine by a certain date, demonstrate proof of vaccination. And during that period, plus the two weeks it 
takes after the second vaccine to take effect, uh, they would have to do uh, regular testing. That was the proposal. There were other elements of McGill's health plan that uh, others had mentioned and we only tangentially addressed because they didn't really rise to the level of legal barrier that the university had raised, but was part of the multi-layered approach that virtually every other university has in terms of protecting its entire community. So we didn't really get into that, but there's a, a letter almost, the, I think the day after, by uh, colleagues across campus and a letter specifically from the School of Population and Global Health that address those other health issues in addition to this requirement uh, to upload proof of vaccination. And uh, so you mentioned uh, right at the end there that it would be sort of an uploading of proof because I, I think for many of us, uh, it, it would be hard to imagine what, what would a, a mandate like this look like? Would it be people standing? Would it be security at the router gates? Would it be uh, every in front of every building at Miguel? So different universities take different approaches and um, all of those approaches should be considered and pick the best one. Universities in the United States generally treated the uploading of the proof of vaccination as equivalent to a transcript. So if you don't upload your transcript to McGill, you wouldn't be registered. It was just a requirement for registration. A number of US universities took that approach. So it was a one-time uploading, obviously with a transition period for those uh, who didn't, or an uploading of an exemption that had been granted. So one or the other, but it's a one-time affair and you either registered or not. So that's one approach. A different approach at some Canadian universities, such as at Sheridan, which was the first one, was they would have their own kind of pass. We might be able to use the Quebec passport, um, but as they entered, there was a machine and you just read it and, and there'd be you know, guards checking to make sure that at least you did that. So that was a different approach, but it's more intensive. Um, I'm not exactly sure why Sheridan chose that rather than the registration requirement, which is the simplest. Uh, another would be, uh, you know, they, they got cards that indicated whether it had one dose, two doses, something. Again, we have our passport with the different colors, so it would be relatively easy just to show it and have it scanned as you go in. So those are the options that it becomes a question of public health and the best way to implement it, which one of these options. There's an elegance to the registration requirement. I'm not exactly sure why more Canadian universities have not used that, but um, you know, either of these would work, but that's uh, something you're not gonna hand over to lawyers to decide. You want the people who actually understand the public health and the mechanisms of registration and all the implications of that. Uh, to determine the best pathway. What it is not is guards surrounding McGill campus and anybody who walks across campus has to show a pass. It would really be to attend inside buildings. I do not currently know what they're doing in the libraries since they just announced this, but it would be equivalent. It could be equivalent to that, but in the various buildings. Um, and so we'll, we'll mention the, the library uh, being added to the list of places that a, a passport or proof of vaccination is required um, in a bit. But I just wanted to go through the legal issues that 
I think come to mind to most people and were uh, in the letters that uh, were signed by the the professors from the Faculty of Law. Um, so I'll just I'll just sort of list them and then ask uh, for for your thoughts on this. So the first I guess legal issue is if we're considering university as an essential service, wouldn't making a vaccination mandatory exclude people that are already marginalized or or would be otherwise entitled to receive these services? So the simple answer is no, and this has been studied not just by the signatories to that letter, but by professors across Canada, because it's not a uniquely Quebec question, even though the term essential service uh, is, but every province considers higher education as well as post uh, elementary and secondary education is critical, whether they use the term essential or not. And this is why a transition period is so important, right? If we had announced this in June, it would be one thing, but the universities are easily capable of providing vaccination services on campus. McGill did not do a good job at the beginning. They had a one-day clinic that was oversubscribed. They're doing better now. But you would need to provide an availability for this. And you know, students felt ill. They could go home uh, and not have to attend class, et cetera. There, you, one could have accommodated. So it's clear that there were some people who were hesitant or simply couldn't access it. You know, they were in low paying jobs. They were afraid of, you know, they couldn't get the time off. And if they got sick, they would lose their money. One could understand that. And that's why the transition period is, is so important. Uh, it's also important to engage the community, talking to, you know, the SSMU, PGSS, the various student associations, black law students, whatever across campus, because the people who have suffered the most in both Canada and the United States have been the more marginalized people who get, when they get COVID, don't you know, have had the highest level of, uh, of poor outcomes. So it's really important to reach them. And this is not about stigmatizing those who aren't vaccinated. That would be a huge mistake. It's an institutional mistake. And we can blame the institution for not setting up a program that enables people and encourages people to get vaccinated. But to lay blame on individuals is, is a huge mistake. So you would have to address that, but every other campus across Canada has had to deal with this, every campus across the United States. So it's not an insurmountable barrier. And given how late we are to the game, we have plenty of examples to look at in order to determine what's the best way of ensuring everybody had access. So in our view, in our legal analysis, really there's nothing incompatible by a, between a proof of vaccination requirement and ex access to the campus, access to an essential service. And by essential service, you know, it's conditioned by a whole bunch of behavior. If you misbehave, you, you don't get to stay on campus, et cetera. Uh, but in order to really live up to this expectation that students should be able to get an education, the university has the responsibility to do that. But we're a medical, we have a medical school, we're one of the best medical schools in the world. We have associated hospitals. We're already doing some of the works, for example, that Montreal Public Health has given to McGill to do some contact tracing. So we're already engaged in the process. And if we can't provide that type of uh, service to our more marginalized uh, parts of our community, uh, then you know we're in the wrong business. Um, and 
Uh, I guess similarly, but perhaps not, if we're looking only uh, at employees and the, the relationship between the university as an employer imposing potentially this vaccination mandate on employees, what are the, um, how, how would that be um, overcome if we're thinking that Quebec has some of the strongest labor rights in the country? Certainly where there's a union, the first step is to talk to the unions and look for flexibility in terms of how you do this. So we've been living online for 18 months. The administrative staff is mostly still not in person. So one could imagine that those employees who, for whatever reason, are not vaccinated, for not all positions, but for uh, many positions could be accommodated within the McGill framework. And that would be negotiated with the unions. So the unions themselves and the employees within these unions want to be surrounded by vaccinated people too. So there is a way to accommodate that and try to build some flexibility. But the only way you know that is by talking to people and engaging the union. So there's that. Much of our staff is not unionized. The professors are not unionized. Um, and so there, the, the considerations are, are different. Major corporations in Quebec have mandated uh, some type of proof of vaccination. The law firms that are in Montreal are doing so. Nobody seems to believe that in the middle of a global pandemic, when we're in a declared fourth wave, that requiring vaccinations is, presents an insurmountable hurdle. What it does require is dialogue, flexibility, understanding to achieve your goal and to phase it in. But we recognize that um, that you know there, there, it will take time to do that properly. Unfortunately, McGill should have been doing this in July and certainly in August. And by failing to do so, we're put in a position where that dialogue is very difficult. Um, moving on, so you mentioned the exceptions that would be, you know, that are kind of guaranteed required because not everyone can get the vaccine for one reason or another. One thing that we've, I guess, has been reported um, in these past uh, days has been the uh, increase in number of people seeking these medical and religious exceptions. Is it feasible for McGill to become this sort of arbiter about whether one person's exception is valid versus another's? Well, we do it all the time for accommodation for a whole whack of services. Students are constantly uh, have open to them accommodation. So if McGill is claiming that it can't do that, that's a very poor commentary on, on our general ability to accommodate students. This is really no different. As I said, every other U15 university outside of Quebec has figured this out. 700 plus universities in the United States have figured it out. This is not groundbreaking. People have done it. One would hope that there is a, a fast process that's you know, not overly generous, that you know, I don't feel like it is not an excuse to get an exemption, that it's real but at the same time has to be relatively quick. If I look at uh, University of Virginia, uh, for example, about 27,000 students. And if I remember co correctly, um, they, uh, they had, I can't remember, it was three or between three and 600 students who got an exemption. 
So that's what you're looking at. And we deal with exemptions for all kinds of things at a much higher rate at McGill. Uh, and noticeably only 49 students who are registered for this fall were deregistered for failure to get a vaccine. So we're talking about a vanishingly small percentage of campus that will refuse to get a vaccine. There are a whole bunch of hesitant people. There are some people who might prefer not to, but we'll do it. So we're, McGill has constructed a policy to cater to an exceedingly small group of individuals while putting a much larger group at risk. Um, if on the topic of sort of use Quebec Charter and, and Canadian Charter rights that that everyone is talking about these days, but possibly doesn't do not understand. But if we're looking specifically at people who may have a disability or may um, be among the most uh, high, high at risk, um, I think your argument has been that not having this mandate actually discriminates against these people. Uh, could you just speak a bit more about that? Sure, and what's particularly interesting is while the university has said they don't have the legal right, they never disputed the discrimination. They've had two letters that said it. There's been a number of other claims by students themselves, including the PGSS, claiming discrimination. One would think if the university had a case, they would advance it, which they have not. The claim is pretty simple, right? Um, the university, so there's some debate whether universities are covered by the Canadian Charter, not much debate that it's covered by the Quebec Charter. All those who have looked at the issue, those at the substantive, assuming that it applies, have said in the middle of a pandemic, there's no problem. Uh, so that side is gone. On the discrimination side is McGill has a choice of policies. And if it makes a choice that systemically discriminates against identifiable people, then it is discriminating under the law, right? You don't have to purposely discriminate against a particular individual, but if you have policies that you know are going to adversely affect certain populations rather than others, then that is discrimination, both under McGill's internal policies, because the harassment and discrimination policy is specific. It, it acknowledges systemic discrimination. So under its own internal laws, but also the, the Quebec Charter. Uh, and the argument is there is abundant scientific evidence, even from the Quebec government, that certain groups have a disability that put them at higher risk. And there are two types of risk here. One is anybody who is immunosuppressed has some level less protection from the vaccine than someone who isn't immunosuppressed. And it could be they got very little uh, to a slightly diminished amount. Recently, there has been the availability of a third dose, but even that takes time to kick in. And so those who benefited from them certainly have spent them, you know, are spending the month of September without that benefit. Uh, and it's still unclear how protected they are. So that's one group who, even though vaccinated, don't get the full level of protection. And therefore, if exposed to the virus, have a higher risk of contracting a disease. And often the underlying disease, the reason why they're immunosuppressed makes them at higher risk. The other group are people for whom the vaccine works like anybody else, but if they get sick, 
will, uh, you know, the evidence is showing that they are at higher risk of a more serious outcome. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going into ICU and, thank, and hopefully not dying, but they could be incapacitated for longer. Like everybody is subject to some level of incapacity, right? Between 14 and 30% of, uh, of those who are infected have long COVID with very much, um, you know, a whole bunch of different conditions, some more serious than others, could be fainting and headaches, could be loss of focus, et cetera. But these individuals are more likely to have to be away from school and, and lose it, lose time, et cetera. So those two groups exist, uh, those who are immunosuppressed and those who will get a, uh, are more likely to encounter a serious outcome. Now, before Delta, when the risk of being infected and, and having anything serious happen to you was quite small, um, you know, perhaps one could have justified it. But since we've known for months that Delta was out there, we've certainly known that it's been in Canada for several months, it's clear that there are more breakthrough cases. So even if you are, you have a, a regular immune system, you are still at risk. You're still, your risk is much less. I mean, there's no doubt that then if you were unvaccinated, but if you are, in fact, you have a higher risk than other people, and that, that's known to the administration. Second group would be pregnant women. There's very good evidence that pregnant women themselves are at risk, but also at risk of premature uh, delivery. So their offspring are, could suffer health consequences, hopefully short-term, but you don't know. If you give a premature, uh, premature birth, that's always a risk. Don't want it. So that's second group. So first group are those who are disabled, either because they're immunocompromised or have a health condition that's serious enough. It's not every health condition. Uh, usually it's, it's certain uh, types of health conditions with a, a factor that makes it worse. Uh, but there are a number of people around campus that fit within it. Um, and then pregnant women. And the third group are people uh, based on family status, because many of us uh, students, faculty, staff, live in a family, uh, some multi-generational, with people who are susceptible. So the other groups may be, you know, my spouse might be pregnant, I'm taking care of an elderly parent, uh, they might be in a, in a retirement home, and therefore if I get infected, even though I might only get mild symptoms, I might be infectious, because that's the other thing we know about Delta, is that even if you, uh, if you get it, you are, are more infectious than under previous variants. And it real, the, the science there is evolving. Uh, so if I have just a very mild case, chances are, or a very mild case or asymptomatic, there's a good chance I'm not that infectious. Um, but if I have a slightly more one, you know, don't have to go to the hospital, but still, uh, I could infect others. And the problem also is I won't find out about it. I, I'm infectious before I get symptom, symptomatic. So those are the three classes. So the university knows based on very solid evidence that those categories of individuals are put at risk. And for a, on a protected basis, right? So we recognized uh, pregnancy as part of sex discrimination under the charter. It's actually listed in McGill's own policies. We recognize disability as a listed category and family status as a listed category. So here is a protected class of individuals where the science tells the university that they are at particular risk. Now, 
what could the university do? Well, in a world with nothing, they can't do anything, right? If there are no vaccines and there's nothing, then um, then they're not discriminating because we're all in the same bucket. But that's not the case. We see that all the big universities across Canada, except in Quebec, the major ones in the United States, 700 plus, have all adopted multiple layers of protection that have become the standard way to do it. So McGill has chosen not to meet that standard and not meet it just by a little bit, but not meet it by a lot. We are the worst of the U15. Even our Quebec, uh, other Quebec U15 universities are taking greater steps to protect their population short of the best thing to do, which is a vaccine requirement. Every, you know, the public health experts said the best way to do it is a, a proof of vaccination because uh, it will probably give us an extra 10%, move us from 86% to almost 100% uh, of the population being vaccinated. That's a huge uh, effect because it means the virus is not able to stay very long, even if it enters into the community. Um, I guess, so building off that, if we're, we're thinking about what McGill can do and what it says it can do, it, it, going back, you know, all of these measures are uh, at, a, at a provincial level are happening because the Quebec government has the power to, in a public health emergency in this context to impose measures like a passport or, uh, or max, uh, mask mandates, etc. Does McGill have that same authority? Can it go beyond what the Quebec government has has said is, you know, the standard at least for the province? Clearly, it does, and even McGill recognizes it because McGill brought in a mask mandate a week or so prior to the province. So clearly, it had the authority to surpass the provincial level. the The province provides a floor of protection, and then it's up to each institution to determine how much beyond that floor it wants to go given all the circumstances. So you see private employers who have no obligation to go beyond that, going far beyond that. So on the on the legal more rightsy questions, I have two more sort of points. Uh, and they're kind of related, but not really. Privacy being one, uh, can Miguel even collect this kind of information, especially if we're talking about uploading uh, that information to the the Minerva or Moodle of the university, and um, you know, on a health uh, and medical, you know, one of the arguments has been uh, as a vaccination is a medical procedure, we cannot force people to to have a vaccine. That's the gist of the argument. Yeah. So on the first point on privacy, we demand all kinds of information from you, which frankly is far more intrusive than knowing whether you had or did not have a vaccine, right? I know your date of birth. I think we have your social security, your social insurance number. Uh, we have any health issues you have that has for seeking uh, an accommodation. We know your parents. We know your gender. We know your grades. This is minor comparison to that. And we're already demanding it for uh, pubs, the library. So the privacy concern is a minimal concern. If we were outside the pandemic, could we be asking? I think that's a legitimate question, but it's so far from our reality that nobody 
believes that there's a privacy concern. So Professor Kafani, who's an expert in privacy, thought this was a slam dunk argument, you can do it. So the argument about privacy, no. In terms of the forced medical procedure, I mean, this is reminiscent of kind of the anti-vaxxers in the United States saying you're forcing a vaccine on us. I mean, it's been debunked for generations, right? What we're saying is you can choose to get a vaccine or not. No one's going to follow you to a vaccine clinic and stick something in your arm. However, when you make a choice, there are consequences. So let's say I wear glasses and I want to drive my car. My car license might be conditioned upon me wearing glasses, right? That's common. And I choose not to wear glasses and they arrest me. And I say, well, I chose not to because you're forcing me to wear this class. I mean, it's a ridiculous argument, right? I choose to engage in the activity of driving. I choose to come to campus. It's a separate question whether the university tries to provide online services and alternatives to those who don't want to be vaccinated. That's a separate argument. But there is no imposition, and it's been widely recognized. We've been giving vaccines for many decades that this is not a forced medical procedure. And it's frankly offensive when you hear your own university making such debunked arguments that sound an awful lot like the anti-vaxxer community who are saying that getting vaccines is equivalent to the Holocaust and other things. Now, I'm not saying our university went that far, thankfully, but it's all, you know, it's a very small conspiracy group who purposely misunderstands what a proof of vaccination requirement is. It is simply saying, if you choose not to do this, then there are certain consequences to your action, one of which, sorry, you can't show up in class unless you have an exemption, right? There, uh, and that's really important to remember. It's only for those who don't want to get the vaccine because they don't want to get the vaccine, not because of some valid, recognized reason. You're listening to Legalese on CKUT 90.3 FM. That was Michelle Pucci speaking with Richard Gold, a professor in the faculties of law and medicine who has called on McGill University's administration to implement a stricter health policy on campus. Up next is Audrey Perrin speaking with Emily Black, a student in the Faculty of Arts at McGill University who has advocated for a safer return to campus to ensure that students with disabilities can continue their studies without compromising their health. She was told by the university to take a leave of absence in response to her concerns. Okay, sure, yeah. Uh, So my name is Emily Black. I'm a fourth year student at McGill. doing a Bachelor of Arts in English and Communications. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. So actually, I like reached out to you based like on the tweet that kind of Mm -hmm. circulated and reached like our faculty, which is the law faculty because of Professor Goat in which Mm -hmm. um, you were bashing rightfully the university for like its poor handling of the pandemic and like the deleterious effect that it has on like disabled students like on the campus so would you like to tell us more about uh, that particular treat and like what led you to drop it uh yeah for sure um so i had been uh doing a little bit of organizing work with um some folks at SMU. Uh, Claire, who's the VP UA, and Sasha, who's uh, VP external. Um, And yeah, we were organizing a protest uh, for the beginning of the year, um, sort of demanding a uh, more accessible and a safer return to campus. Um, 
And sort of after that happened and, you know, after conversations I had with students and, you know, the kind of how it seemingly kind of just didn't really do much uh, or didn't have much of an impact on the admin, um, you know, I was getting pretty frustrated about like all the inconsistencies in their policies and, you know, how they're just not uh, providing a safe environment. So I you know, tweeted about it and my situation uh, because I kind of saw it at the beginning of the year kind of as this like choice that I have to make, you know, and I still make it every day when I go into class and, but between, you know, going on campus and as an immunocompromised person, possibly getting COVID, which is very likely. I mean, I, my roommate and I already had a COVID scare because someone in her, uh, in her class tested positive. So we all got tested and thankfully we were okay. But yeah, it's between that and, um, you know, what McGill has told immunocompromised students to do, which is take a leap of absence and just drop out basically. And for me, because I'm on financial aid, um, both for to go to school and to live in Montreal, um, I wouldn't, I would lose my funding if I took a, a leap of absence. So that's not something that's possible for me like I probably wouldn't be able to come back and uh, like finish my degree um, so yeah it's really like that kind of choice between you know being unsafe on campus but wanting to you know continue my education and take part in the classes that I'm doing or you know stay home and wait it out and possibly not be able to finish mm-hmm. which I was not aware that like that that was the university's response it was just like yeah. take a leave of absence like I have um a friend that was like super like supposed to start law school last year and mm-hmm. like the law faculty was like oh like kind of the same thing like oh you may take a leave of absence like blah 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 but mm-hmm. they still had to like provide some like medical documentation saying that like they mm-hmm. really needed it and it was just like too much and like kind of inadequate too yeah Um, and I've heard of some folks that like have a medical reason but haven't like you know they're they did the letter but it like for whatever reason wasn't accepted by McGill so some people like aren't even able to take it like for whatever reason and do you know what happens for those people or are they like not Um, going to school and then they got to re-up apply or something I think like yeah if you choose to just if you can't take a leave of absence and you just don't like you just can't come to campus like yeah you would have to like reapply I guess I know this the system is weird it's really complicated I don't know much about it but everyone I know that's had to take a leave of absence or tried to it's been like a nightmare yeah no totally I assume um also can you like expose a bit like what the smooth demands were regarding like that and you mentioned that like there was not you know a positive response or like inclusion (laughs) even like the sort of like the university governance bodies for that so do you want to like just maybe expose like what those demands were and like how they were received yeah for sure um so yeah so it's it was most it was based off of three main demands um the first one was for a um, vaccine mandate to be implemented for classes and like basically more on-campus activities 
because um, as it stood then, the only things that it was required for were um, like non-essential activities. And one of the examples the administration actually gave was scavenger hunts like for frosh. So that's really fun that you need a vaccine to participate in a scavenger hunt, but not to go to class. Um, and residences as well, which I think is a really, really key place that they should be having a vaccine mandate because uh, almost all of the out the um, outbreaks last year on campus were in residences. And of course you have so many students like living in close quarters, it's, it's not their fault. Like there's, it's really hard to, you know, adequately distance and, and keep everyone safe, so. Uh, yeah, that was one. Uh, the second one was to uh, provide accommodations for um, students and the main two groups of students that we are thinking about are um, international students who, you know, may not because of, uh, you know, visas and like borders and stuff may not be able to come back to Montreal like right away. Um, and they deserve, you know, accommodations so that they can still participate in their classes and, you know, do their degrees from wherever they are. Um, and immunocompromised students like myself, um, who also deserve, um, you know, so accommodations so that we can participate in our classes safely, you know, whether that means like a hybrid model, um, like so people can participate online from home or you know, just accommodations so that people in whatever situation they're in can participate in their classes safely. Um, and then the third one is just um, consultation with students on um, COVID policies and especially ones that have to do with on-campus safety and stuff like that, because the engagement that the McGill has allowed so far has really been limited to, you know, small events like the town halls and stuff like that but those all had like pre-approved questions so it really didn't feel like students could really participate because you had to submit them ahead of time and then mcgill like picked once once they would answer so it didn't really feel like as much of an open forum as like a town hall mm. should be um yeah and they in terms of the protest they didn't acknowledge it at all they didn't um you know reach out to um, Claire or Sasha, as far as I know, or um, they didn't address it in an email or anything. Um, and yeah, I think from then on, it's from what I've seen, they've mostly just been like making it up as they go along. It seems like, you know, first they said, we can't do any vaccine mandate on campus. And then they included some, and then now they added libraries um, and you know, there was that time point in time where they said that they wouldn't notify anyone if you um, mm. if you had a positive case in your class because it's, you know, their like breach of privacy or something like that. Um, but people have now they're saying that like they will tell people. And I mean, I don't know for sure, but when my roommate received the email about the outbreak in her class, it was um, it said it was like the you know, the Montreal Public Health Authority asks McGill to tell you that. So I'm sure that the health authority had to step in and say, you know, you can't just like not tell people because that's like, I'm pretty sure that's the law in Quebec that you have to, but yeah. 
Yeah, I find it so like I haven't dived into like the sort of like excuse that they're serving for like not implementing mm-hmm. a vaccination mandate on campus, yeah. which is like, oh no, but in Quebec, it's not possible. But I'm mm-hmm. like, I really doubt it because like Quebec seems to have been like their province with like the stricter like health mm-hmm. regulations during the pandemic. And I'm like, if it was okay for them to like implement a curfew for like months and months and months, I'm sure mm-hmm. that like you yeah, know vaccination mandates there, are like there are a vac- there is a vaccine passport in Quebec for so many similar like similar activities and environments that have like similar like amounts of risk I think do you like or this move have sort of an intuition about like why McGill has been like so reluctant to like implement those demands honestly I really I really don't know I'm Like, I know that McGill tends to only do things when, you know, when money is on the line, like they kind of only make decisions when money is on the line. Mm -hmm. We've seen that before with so many other like student demands, like, you know, with the uh, change the name campaign um, for the McGill sports teams and, you know, for the James McGill statue, you know, they really only make a decision once, like funding is on the line and I think that that's true with how they've dealt with things but I honestly don't know why they're so resistant to implementing those measures like when every other almost every other university in Canada has Mm -hmm. I know that in our faculty there are some conversations right now like between students between like I, I would I think the majority who like support a vaccination mandate and like some students that are like really really opposed to it and sometimes to like vaccination in itself have like those conversations been happening in your faculty as well um not really as I mean not as far as I know um I'm I'm a part-time student right now so I'm only taking a few classes and they're both pretty small so you know everyone I'd say is like like like-minded in the way that like everyone's like wearing masks and like being respectful of that and I think um as like everyone's pretty conscious about COVID safety, um, but it hasn't really come up that much except for that, like, you know, just sort of chatting about like, wow, like how has Miguel not, you know, implemented more stuff? And I think like when we, I have had conversations with my classmates, it's often like the information that I'm sharing with them is usually like information they're hearing for the first time, because that's the other thing too, is like Miguel doesn't really publicize a lot of like the decisions that they're making and like, not everyone reads the emails that the MRO sends out. Like that's fair. Mm. There's a lot of them. Um, but yeah, not not as much. I mean, I did when we had the protest, I did like talk to a lot of students, you know, people who came by to the tent and wanted to talk to us either because they supported it or they didn't. Um, I talked to several students that like were really, really against it. Um I don't love having those conversations because, um, you know, a lot of times it really easily gets into the argument that like, oh, well, immunocompromised people are such a, such a small percentage and it doesn't matter. And, you know, and it's, it's, it sucks to have to like argue your right to safety against Mm -hmm. people's, you know, personal freedoms or their ability to go out to a bar and have a drink and you know stuff like that no for sure you know and like the vaccination uh fast forward was like announced mm-hmm. and like there was like a big surge in sort of vaccination registration and I was like mm-hmm. 
like good that people are getting vaccinated but like wash that like you know being vaccinated for like protecting your community was like not a big incentive enough and that like mm-hmm. it is like when your ability to go to like a bar or a show or like in a restaurant is compromised that like you're taking action mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so um I guess final question would be like how can we best like support you support smooth in this effort and like what do you foresee in the future I don't know what the what the future has for Miguel. I really hope that we can get through the semester without, you know, having to shut down um, and with as few like positive cases as possible. But you know, I am pretty. I'm pretty. I'm not very optimistic to be honest. Uh, mm. You know, the weather's starting to get colder, and you know, especially since most of the classrooms don't have like any ventilation at all. And then Mm -hmm. you can't keep the windows open anymore. So I'm getting a little scared. Um, But yeah, in terms of how people can support, I guess, like, honestly, just continuing to be safe and like practicing COVID safety on Mm -hmm. campus, because, you know, like public health is like about all of us. And it's, it's like a community contribution. And we all have to you know, do our part to keep everybody safe. So just people keep, I know it sucks to like still be in the pandemic. Like it sucks for everyone, most of all disabled people, but like, yeah, just keep wearing your mask and washing your hands and like being conscious. And that's probably the most helpful thing that people can do, honestly. Really thinking of you. I'm sorry you're going there, that this is your situation (laughs) right now. And like, yeah, big, big, big support. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for like reaching out to me. Uh, it's like, I'm glad to like talk to you and talk about this. It's good that, you know, people are still keeping the conversation going because I think some people kind of just forgot. Welcome back. That was Legalise's Audrey Perron speaking with Emily Black about how McGill's COVID response is failing students. The university's handling of the pandemic brought up larger issues of university governance. What role does the administration play? What about the faculty? Who actually makes decisions and how can they be held accountable? We return to Michelle Pucci and Richard Gold to expand on some of these issues. I want to ask more now about what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, so, you know, if we're thinking about these decisions being made by other human beings uh, and with different levels of power. Uh, but first, I guess to start, why did you and these and the other professors at the Faculty of Law decide to write the first letter? We've been asking the university since they asserted that they cannot require proof of vaccination to provide the legal basis for that claim. We are lawyers. We wrote to lawyers, the general counsel. Generally, when you have a legal argument, you are willing to share it and explain what is the legal basis, right? If you came and wrote an exam for me and just gave me the conclusion, but didn't tell me how you got there, you would not do so well. And so we expected when we asked our university, who's, which is making legal claims to just give us the basis because we can't find it. Uh, we did that for months and we got no response. They refused to even tell us. Uh, so the general counsel, as I said, the secretary general and others refused to ever elaborate on it. And we kept hearing this argument over and over again. So we felt it incumbent upon us 
to, to look into the issue. Maybe the university was right. We were willing to look. So we looked at what we could. Now, not having the help of someone who has formulated an argument, hard to rebut something you don't even know. So we tried to look wide uh, at a wide set of possible arguments and we found no basis for it. And we're not the only ones, as I said, uh, colleagues around the country who have similar institutions found the same thing. The Provo, the Rector Jutra, who's our former dean, had concluded the same thing. He wrote to his student body, we have, as an independent authority, the ability to do this. We choose not to for policy reasons. So that was our motivation. He did that after we wrote our letter, perhaps partly in response. But we felt we had to fill this void that the university had done. The reaction to our initial letter was, well, maybe that's not representative of the entire faculty because he only had 12 or 13. I remember what we were at, maybe higher. Uh, so we wrote a second letter with an overwhelming majority of faculty members and getting 35 and one more joined after to agree on a single letter uh, among lawyers is like almost impossible. Uh, but we had broad agreement that these principles were uh, were clear, these, uh, this analysis of law. So that's why we did the second letter in order to clarify to any doubters that there was any disagreement about the conclusion. And then after the first letter, we all got, I think, the email or, you know, this this response. Uh, but I don't, was there something that was sent directly in to the people who had, you know, written the letter? Yes. So the principal wrote to the law professors um, and she basically says, as you know, we're not allowed to do this after we had spent how many pages arguing the opposite. Um, so she knows better than her faculty of law about what the law states, uh, basically. And that was it. She, she did not address the issue of discrimination. She did not address any liability issues should the university be sued for, some, for being substandard in terms of the, the precautions they were taking. And so as a, a member of faculty, I think students, we imagine that professors have more power than they maybe do because there are, you know, faculty councils or departments that have a sort of a local decision-making power. And then there's the Senate, which I imagine has, you know, some higher up powers to, to make some decisions. Um, but why, why don't either of these bodies have a say in this one? That's a good question that one should pose to the Provo. He claimed powers that we do not believe that the McGill constitution, if you wish, provided. So we're incorporated federally. There's something called the McGill statute, which is kind of like a bylaw that sets out who has powers. The Provo proclaimed himself to have certain powers. Faculty council and our faculty last week told him he was wrong. So there, you know, there's a taking of power. The, there's the, the, one of the problems has been over the last 20 years is that Senate's makeup has changed. So it used to be really representative of faculty and students, but over time, more and more uh, official administrators have sat on Senate. So it's about 50-50 now. So unless you've got every single independent faculty member organized, which is very difficult, it's very hard to do much in Senate. And so Senate has become more of a body 
to hear from the administration than a real deliberative body that it used to be. Uh, but this is not the current administration only. It's been a trend for at least 20 years, if not longer. I only got here 20 years ago, so I can't speak to beforehand, but it's been a slow erosion. We're not the only university that has gone uh, this way. There's been an, you know, the, the central administration. There's a frustration when you've got a whole bunch of faculty members going off all kinds of directions. There's no unitary voice. So if you're an administrator, there's a natural desire to try to bring all these little cats into line so that if you're you know, arguing for the more money or this or that, you can align your, your public statements with what's going on internally. Uh, but that contradicts the collegial nature of a university. So it's always been a tension. As I said, the faculty members, and, and they have to take some responsibility, have let this happen over uh, 20 years. And uh, we're in a situation where the Senate now is not a real deliberative body. It really passes what the administration. So once in a while, there's a protest. So a few years ago, there was a motion uh, you know, to get the university to think about divestment of uh, fossil fuels. But it was pretty weak because the administration was able to contain it. They often switch active motions to do something into a general discussion and everybody feels good because they've discussed it, but nothing changes. You know, the university's the administration says, well, we'll take it under advisement, but there's no evidence they ever do. In fact, there was a motion put forward to Senate uh, on the issue of uh, a, a proof of vaccine requirement and the steering committee, which is controlled by the administration, didn't allow it to go forward. Instead, they put on a general, general discussion. So the, the mechanics of how it works does not, is not really amenable to a full discussion and decision-making there. Um, so a lot of the structures that you know, come out of our long history as universities to really ensure that decisions are made locally in the you know, kind of, you know, if you think about the European Union, instead of making it up on top, you have the subsidiarity principle, you push it down. The same thing was true of universities that, you know, the best place to make decisions about how to teach law students is in the law faculty. Um, that has been eroded to a certain extent. And the, the provost Fiat in his memo of August 29th is an illustration where the, the provost claimed a power he didn't have, um, probably counting on no deliberative body being able to push back on him. Uh, but we were able to organize the faculty of law so that we had two thirds of uh, faculty council saying he was wrong, but that, you know, we're the only one so far, it's going up to arts uh, next week. So we'll see what happens. There are some, you know, more practical, technical yeah. things that we think of when we're considering a vaccine mandate and why doesn't Miguel just, you know, go ahead and do it. And so I'm thinking maybe it's because Miguel doesn't want to admit that its classrooms just can't accommodate uh, online and in-person teaching and because it has almost a, a, like it's been told by the Quebec government that it has to have in-person teaching, it's just trying to, to make everyone happy. Well, the in-person teaching is not true because Concordia allows any professor to go online, Laval basically the same. There's certainly nothing about recording and making it available. There's nothing prohibiting 
uh, hybrid ways of teaching, partly online, partly in person. So there are a whole bunch of things McGill could be doing that our sister universities are doing. There is clearly a financial link between how many people you can stuff into a classroom and the revenues you get because the university it's a complicated formula but basically each head brings in a certain amount of money from the province and so stuffing more people in helps uh, but that should not prevent us from looking at online options many classrooms have recording capacity now not all but many do and so it would be possible to teach enough classes, either hybrid or online, to really lighten the load. So if we took um, a bunch of classes and moved them online, and then we moved some of the medium-sized classes into the very large classrooms, you could decrease congestion uh, in the classroom and still have some in-person learning. There are lots of things that McGill could do in addition to the proof of vaccination, clearly the proof of vaccination would help a lot because you know, what gets you infected is the cloud of viruses out there. Every vaccinated person is putting out less than an unvaccinated uh, and it hangs in the air. Poor ventilation uh, is, is contributing to the problem. McGill doesn't even measure the air you know, you're supposed to change air four to six times an hour for COVID. McGill has no idea. Um, they ban, they don't ban, they tell us not to use portable HEPA filters, which the CDC and everybody else says to use to clean the air. So they don't want that. So we have higher levels of virus in the air. You can fix that by getting people vaccinated, by decreasing, um, by having more distancing, by having you know, fewer people in the classroom by putting some people online. So there are a whole bunch of things they could do that would not cost it a lot. And yes, they might have inadequate infrastructure, but you can work around that, right? You could have some in-person classrooms. It might limit students' choice to a certain extent, but there are enough workarounds that those students who were vulnerable would have a real choice between showing up on campus and, and getting online services. Is it ideal? No, especially so late in the game. But is it worth doing to protect one's health? Yes. So going back to, I guess, uh, what we what does require a vaccine mandate, uh, the new, uh, I guess, the news is now that uh, students will have to prove vaccination status, but not staff, I think. Ironically, there's just this sort of distinguishing about who can access our libraries. Um, does that to you suggest that maybe the university is opening or softening its position? It suggests to me that the university has no principled view on vaccine requirements and that they're scrambling for something to get them out of the mess that they have created, because it makes no sense, right? The argument that students need a vaccine passport is while the, the library is essential, right, like the rest of us, students can access the materials online. Well, guess what? Classes are essential and you can access them online. So there's no principled argument. Once you accept one, you realize that the university is not acting on principle, is not acting on the basis of some imaginary legal requirement, but is scrambling to look better. 
Why they don't do the right thing, I have no clue at this point. Uh, the easiest thing for them. The problem is if they change things tomorrow, my fear is nobody would trust them. Uh, so even if they did all the right things tomorrow, there is such a breach of trust. You know, the promise was given to students that you get in-person learning safely. That has been breached. And once you've breached it with this administration in place, it will be very hard, in my view, to ever rebuild it, or it will take years to rebuild it um, if the university actually does improve. So we, we've got a problem here in the scrambling for these little solutions here and there to look better doesn't really change uh, the fundamental fact that they're, you know, that that's not going to solve the problem. It's not just a re vaccine requirement. It is a requirement for good air, proper masking, having professors remove their masks is incredibly dangerous, especially if they're unvaccinated. You have no idea, right? There are cases in California where an unvaccinated teacher spread it to everybody in class. So there are all these policies that are missing that our sister institutions, even in Quebec, have. And so, yeah, I'm happy that there's an extra layer of protection, but it's pretty minor considering uh, the situation we're in. Vous écoutez une émission de Legalese sur CKUT 90.3 FM. That's all from us today. Thank you for listening and thanks to everyone who contributed to the show. You can listen to Legalese every second Friday of the month from 11 a.m. till 12 noon on CKUT 90.3 FM. If you have ideas of topics you'd like us to cover, legal or not, you can write to us at legalese at ckut.ca. Find us on SoundCloud or Facebook at CKUT Legalese. Till next time.